you turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 in your Bibles. I want to take a few moments uh, before the sermon to uh, go over one of the things we do on a Sunday. Typically we do this from time to time. We take a few moments uh, to remind us of something we do that's part of our Sunday worship gathering and why we do it. There's a reason for it. Uh, there's intentionality there, and uh, today we're talking about kids right now. I think you saw a bunch of kids leave and go to the back. Where do they go, and why do they go back there, and what's that all about? We have this conviction that parents are the primary disciple makers of their children. That parents, that's one of your primary roles as a parent, is to lead them to know and follow Jesus. And uh, one of the ways that we like to equip parents is by helping teach your kids during this teaching time as a church. And so for kids up through the second grade, we'll take them in the back, and uh, a lot of our parents are volunteering their time to teach them the gospel and teach them who Jesus is so that you are less distracted uh, here and during this time so that you can be more equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ to apply it even deeper into your life because the more equipped you are, the more the gospel saturates more of your life than the more you are a fully formed, maturing follower of Jesus. And the more that's happening in you, mom or dad, then the more your kids are going to be discipled by the life and the presence of Jesus in their life. And so that's one of the ways we equip our parents is by taking kids who could be a distraction right now. I don't know. Your kids are like that. Mine are. And uh, loving them, teaching them well, and then uh, equipping you to disciple them well in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, then they come back. We have it available uh, for the youngest kids. They can stay back there through communion if, if you would like communion time to be less distracting. We'll keep them back there through communion. The older kids can come uh, and, sh- and, and watch you partake in communion. And when they come to faith in Christ, they can share in that meal with us. But uh, we want kids in here during some of the worship gatherings. So we're not babysitting kids on Sunday morning for you. We're not uh, doing your job as parents for you and, and having them the entire time. We think it's important for them to be in here for part of the worship gathering, to watch you sing to Jesus, to watch you sing with this family of faith that we're a part of to Jesus. And we think that's valuable because they're learning things, they're, they're hearing things, they're remembering things that are important as they're participating, even if they don't understand the words we're saying. It doesn't make sense to them the theological truths we're singing about. It's getting inside of them. And God will use that. The Spirit of God will use that for a long time in their life. And so we want them here during the singing time, but during the teaching time, we will go in the back and and, uh, teach them um, so that you can be equipped. And uh, obviously, it takes a lot of people to pull this off. And so if you're sitting here and you're a part of the Crossing Church or you want to be a part of the Crossing Church, especially if you want to be a covenant member, we would invite you, man or woman, to uh, find out how you can be a part of teaching kids on Sunday morning. Uh, we're asking, we're, we're, we're working this year to make sure that everyone who's doing that is a covenantal member that has been background checked because uh, we want to have a high fence around our church from anyone who would think they could come into our church and get access to our kids and do sinful things. Like, no, that's not going to happen here. And so if, if you're willing to go through the process of covenantal membership, if you're willing to be background checked and you love kids and want to free up parents to be equipped as disciple makers, then let us know. See See one of our elders, uh, see some of the ladies who lead this ministry, uh, Jennifer, Kelly, Elizabeth, Corey, uh, some of the people who are already teaching, and they can tell you how you can go through that process to get plugged in. Uh, speaking of covenantal membership, uh, today uh, is the, the, the Sunday this month that we're offering our Connect class. 
So Connect class is something we require to go through the membership process. And so today you can join us after the worship gathering. We'll feed you lunch and we'll sit, you'll sit down with a couple of our elders and we'll talk about what makes us distinct as a local church, what's distinct about the crossing from other churches in our area. And you can ask us questions and get more insight. Um, you can also go to the Connect class and not become a member. It's also just for people who want to know more. Um, so you're invited to do that today. We do that one Sunday every month, and we're going to do that today right after our worship gathering upstairs. But let's jump in today's sermon, Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Father, we are thankful for your word that you have chosen to make yourself known to us. And your spirit is here today to help us understand what your word says and how to apply it to our life. Maybe even for some, your spirit and your word are here today to bring life and salvation. For all of us to bring encouragement and conviction and joy in Christ. So we ask you to do this work because you love us, not because we've earned this or could ever pay you back, but simply because you love us and want us to know you and enjoy you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in this year-long series called Redemption Story, a a series that coincides with us reading through the Bible um, as a church this year. Uh, We're not having check-ins every week. We're not handing out gold stars if you're keeping up. So only you know where you're at in that Bible reading plan. Uh, We hope you're checking in with your DNA groups or your missional communities or maybe uh, your spouse or kids in the home. And there's some accountability and encouragement going on. Uh, But we want it to not be something that creates more self-righteous religion inside of our hearts. Look at me how great I am at this. But we want it to be something that creates more love and affection for God in our hearts. And so wherever you're at, it's the 68th day of the year. If you haven't hardly begun, know how much your Father in Heaven loves you and wants you to know Him. So start today. Just start wherever the plan starts. Start a new plan today. It doesn't have to end in 2020. Whatever and whatever way you need to engage, engage. Because your Father in Heaven wants to know you through His Word and wants you to know Him through His Word. And so uh, that's that's the goal. Be driven by love and and to know Him more, to love Him more. Uh, But our teaching time on Sunday mornings is walking through the entire story of the Bible, seeing the Bible as Jesus saw the Bible, not just 66 separate books that really don't uh, have any connection to each other, but as 66 separate books that really tell one story. That's how we want to understand the Bible, the story of God's redemption of a fallen, broken creation for the glory and praise and worship of God among all people. It's March the 8th. We've only made it through Genesis 1 through 3. I know you're thinking, this is not going to happen this year. I promise we have a plan. Last two Sundays before Christmas, we'll be in Revelation, Lord willing. Uh, We saw God create everything good in Genesis 1 and 2, and then everything became infected with the curse of sin in Genesis 3. What happens between Genesis 3 and our passage today? Well, it's a continuation in some ways of Genesis 3, a mixture of the sinfulness of man, the judgment of God on our sins, and the grace of God in that judgment. It's really a, a continuation in some respects of the, the story of Genesis 3.15, the enmity or war between the serpent and his offspring and the seed of the woman, the coming seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. 
The serpent and his offspring are constantly trying to wipe out the seed of the woman because the serpent, as we know later in the Bible, is Satan, knows God and knows that when God says one day the seed of the woman will come and crush your head, he knows it's going to happen. But maybe I can wipe out this seed of the woman and maybe I can thwart the plan of God. Maybe I can win this battle. And so in Genesis 4, the first two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. It's four people on earth. Right? They, they, no one to blame but the sin that's within their own heart, as we find out in, in Genesis 4. Now Abel, we would find out, is not the next in line of the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent. This would be the next son, Seth. But at this point, no one really knows. Cain is jealous of Abel. Abel kills him. Or rather, uh, Cain kills Abel. God confronts his sin, hands out judgment. Cain, you have to roam the earth. But God also shows grace. As you roam the earth, you will carry a mark of protection that will keep you safe. Fast forward a little bit. More people are born. Human cultures and cities are created. But sin also continues to abound in the descendants of Cain and obviously many, many more. So that by Genesis 6, God is ready to start over. Verse 5, when the Lord saw the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Verse 8, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Sin was infecting everything. Wickedness was prevailing um, except in this one man on whom the favor of the Lord rested, Noah. You probably have seen Evan Almighty. It's not the same exact story because that's more about works righteousness, but the same idea. This guy gets this strange command of God to build this boat that's never been built before far away from the water. Now, if we were building a boat in our front yard, as much rain as we've been getting, that may not seem strange around here. But in that day, in that culture, it was weird. Why is he doing this? Well, Noah's obeying God. Noah obeys God and God spares he and his family as he cleanses the earth seemingly of sin and gives creation a fresh start. In fact, after the flood, you have a repeat in some ways of the cultural mandate, Genesis 9-7. But you, same thing he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. God shows his grace in another way by making a covenant with Noah, signified by placing a bow in the sky. I will no longer use this bow to carry out judgment on sinful humanity in the same way, by flooding the earth, but when you see the bow in the sky, the rainbow, you'll be reminded of God's promise to humanity to show grace despite their deserving of judgment. But of course, right after God's judgment for the sins of humanity, God's grace in sparing Noah and his family, we see that sin still resides in the human heart. Noah grows some grapes, gets drunk, and then Noah's son uh, dishonors his father in his nakedness. And shames his father and commits a sin that allows him to also be cursed and be sent out. And so the themes continue. Humanity's sin continue to grow leading up to chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Humanity quits fulfilling the cultural mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with image bearers. Humanity quits spreading out, gathers up in a city, and begins to build a tower, probably a ziggurat, not to worship God, but to worship themselves. Let's build this tower to show everyone how great we are. And God condescends and comes down to check it out and sees once again the pride and sinfulness of man and brings judgment for their sins. He will confuse their language. They'll no longer be able to communicate to get this project done and they will quit in frustration. Not because uh, they, they somehow repented and believed in God. Okay, we'll finally obey him and fill the earth, but just because they can't communicate. They're 
begrudgingly spreading out and filling the earth now. Interestingly, where is God's grace in this story? We've seen in every time God's intervened to judge humanity's sin, we've seen his grace, but now where is it? Which raises the question at the end of Genesis 11. Is God done with humanity? Is God done with the plan of redemption? Is he through with the nations? And of course we know the answer is no. But God's plan of redemption makes a significant transition. Instead of now dealing with all of humanity, God is going to begin to deal primarily with one man, one family, and eventually one nation. The greatness and fame, the wicked people of Babel sought for themselves and their own skills and abilities. God chooses to give to one man, one family, one nation. His name would be great. He would father a great nation, and the entire earth would be blessed to the descendants of this one man. It begins in this very bleak stake. Look back up to Genesis 11, verse 27. These are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in the Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. After Babel, you read of all these descendants and eventually you come to this family of Terah who had three sons, one of which was Abram. Of course, we know him as Abraham and Sarai. We know her as Sarah. So I'm just going to say Abraham and Sarah just to make things easier. Uh, Abram, Abram, the father of father, Abraham, father of many. Interestingly, three of the world's largest faith groups all trace their heritage back to this one man, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Abram has a wife, Sarai. She is childless, unable to conceive. And Abraham is living with his father, his entire family, in the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans, modern-day Iraq. And Abram's father was set to, to move from Ur to Canaan, but when they, it, the text says when they got to Haran, they stopped. They settled there. This is good enough. Now, based on what we know, Terah and Abram and their families were not living out the experience of Seth and his family. If you go back to Genesis 4, the very end of Genesis 4, it says Adam was intimate with his wife Eve again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has given me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now remember the promise of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman's coming who will crush the head of the serpent, but there will be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the, the seeds of this woman. And here comes Seth, through whom the serpent-crushing king would one day come. And what do we find Seth and his family doing? Calling on the name of the Lord. Fast forward thousands of years, thousands of people, and the offspring of the woman has passed through Noah, and his family has now passed through Terah and now Abram. And do we see any indication that they are calling on the name of the Lord? We have every reason to believe, based on what happens at the Tower of Babel, that they are in fact idol worshippers. They're not calling on the name of the Most High God. They're calling on the name of pagan gods. And not only that, the wife of Abram, through whom the seed was supposed to come, she can't have children. 
So by the end of Genesis 11, God's story of redemption seems completely broken. His people aren't even worshiping him, the seed of the woman. And the one through whom the line was supposed to continue can't have children. It seems as though at the end of Genesis 11, the serpent is going to win. But we know it's not never the end of the story. Because God is always going to accomplish his purpose and his plan. Genesis 1 through 11, consider the introduction to the entire Bible, not just the, the, the book of Genesis. And so hope would be changed when God speaks, Genesis 12. God calls and everything is changed. Literally telling Abram in strong, strong language in 12.1, you get out from among your family. You get, out, you get yourself out from among them. They've settled in Haran, but I'm not working through them in Haran. I'm working through you in this land I will show you. What land? Well, I'll show you. Pack up and start walking. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless you so that you can eventually, your descendants, be a blessing to everyone in the entire world. Everything God desires to do through Abram, God has to empower and enable. God has to lead him to this land. He doesn't have any clue where it's at. God has to give him this land. God has to enable childbirth. They've been trying for years to have children. They can't. They're unable to conceive. God has to bless them so he can be a blessing to others. What is Abraham's responsibility? Well, if you look at verse 4, his first responsibility was obedience, and he did. So Abram went. Action. But here's what's interesting. The rest of the story of the Bible doesn't focus on Abram's obedience as the basis of his justification, as the basis of his righteousness. It focuses on Abram's faith, believing God. When God speaks again to Abram in Genesis 15, years have passed. They still don't have a child. You can flip over to Genesis 15. Abram is wondering how and when is this plan going to get going? He's uncertain, maybe confused, afraid, probably frustrated to some degree. Look at their conversation at the beginning of chapter 15. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my household is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, the one, uh, this one will not be your heir, instead one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. The same language Paul uses in Romans to describe how our salvation is not the basis of our works, but faith in the God who works for us. That is the basis of our salvation. In fact, this is emphatically driven home if you go through the rest of chapter 15, verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. 
As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Ammonites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set... And it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared. It passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring. From the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Catamanites, Hevites, and a bunch of otherites. Abram asked, How will I know that you will actually keep your promise? that I will actually have a son, that I will possess this land. And God asked him to take a bunch of animals and cut them in half. It's very strange to us. But at Abram's day, this would be very common, a covenant-establishing ceremony. The significance is you cut the animals in half, and you and the person you are entering into this covenant relationship with, you walk between the, the parts of the animals signifying that if one of us breaks our end of the covenant, let it be done to us as was done to the animals. If I don't hold up my end of the bargain, then may I be slaughtered because I can't be trusted. Covenants were incredibly significant, very strong, binding, relational contracts. But when Abram goes into a deep sleep, and in his sleep, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appear and pass through the bodies of the animals, both of these items are representative of God. What's Abraham doing? Sleeping, doing nothing. In effect, God is saying, Abram, I'm not passing through these animal hives, uh, halves with you because this is a covenant that is not equally dependent on you to make happen. This is a promise from me that I make happen. It hinges 100% on me. In effect, God is saying, I will do the necessary work to keep these promises. You simply believe me, trust me, obey me, but not obey me in order to make these promises happen, but believe and obey me because you know until and only when I come through will these promises happen. Obey me because of who I am and what I have promised, not because you're trying to manipulate me or earn my favor or make something happen in your own power. I am who I am, and I've revealed this to you, so now you go and obey me. Think about the timeline of these promises. In Genesis 12, when God appears to Abram, he's 75, Sarah is 65. When God first appears to him. The covenant ceremony, maybe 10 or 15 years later, we don't really know. Maybe another 10 or 15 years until Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. So what we do know for sure is it's 25 years total. From the first time God spoke to him in Genesis 12 until Genesis 21 when they have Isaac. At 99 in Genesis 17, God changes his name from Abram to, to Abraham. But, but think about it. Abram and Sarai, Sarah, were an already unable to conceive when God first shows up to them, promising them this son and all these descendants. Maybe at 75 and 65, they had already given up. We're not having kids. But when they get this promise, they continue to try. 
to conceive. Each week, each month, experiencing an agony that, that truly only couples who have struggled with infertility could understand. Ugh, not this month. Maybe next month. Not this month. Maybe next month. For 25 years. Abraham is credited with righteousness because he believed God in his promises. But this belief, if genuine, leads to obedience. And in this case, his obedience was to continue to have sex with his wife. Year after year, month after month, even though they had never conceived. Believing this might be the month. This might be the month. God had not promised a miraculous conception like he did with Mary and baby Jesus. This conception would come through the union of Abram and Sarai. And here they are week after week, month after month, believing God and letting that belief drive their obedience in action. It wasn't their works that justified them and made them righteous, but their belief in God who was able to keep his promises, trusting in God's timing, trusting in God's provision, Paul digs into this in Romans 4, Romans 4, 4, verse 16. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also, not only those who are Jewish, but also those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight in whom Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed Abraham, hoping against hope so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he is able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. That it would be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, hoping against hope. Humanly, there's no reason to hope that these things would come true. Abraham considered his own body dead. Sarah's womb is dead. Humanly speaking, why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. We're not going to have children. And they, Sarah openly struggled to believe, laughing at God's promises at one time. Now, their faith wasn't perfect, right? Don't hear that. We're not raising up the, the people of the Old Testament, some kind of like superheroes who did everything right. We know Genesis 16 exists. And they decide to concoct a scheme to make this happen through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. We know their faith is not perfect. Abraham even put the promise at risk twice by letting foreign kings almost marry Sarah because he was so afraid of them that he lied about their relationship and said, oh, she's just my sister. Oh, if that's your sister, then I can marry her. And twice God has to intervene to save this story of redemption happening through Abraham and Sarah. No one needs to try and make the case their faith was perfect, but their faith and not their works was the basis of their righteousness, and that is clear. They believed God, hoping even against hope. In hope, 
even though humanly speaking there was no reason to hope, they kept hoping. Hoping against hope. Believing God, continuing to try and conceive month after month for 25 years, trusting God would be faithful to provide in his way, in his time. And I know probably there aren't many in this room who struggle to believe and trust in God's promise and provision for your life. Who never waver, never pull a Genesis 16, try and make something happen in your own power and ability. We're certainly 3,000 years removed from Abraham. We are much more mature, much more sophisticated in our faith today. So this really doesn't apply to us. It's amazing how far we have not come. But see that whatever God has promised and however God has promised to provide, believe him and then act out of that believance, that belief. Even when provision and promise doesn't immediately come, continue on. Hoping against hope, it's coming. Being faithful, it's coming. Certainly five or six years into a church plant, we would love to have dozens and dozens upon baptisms every year because we're seeing the lost converted in our city we're seeing people come alive in christ but we don't throw up our hands because we're not seeing that well we're not very good at this we must quit we keep plowing we keep planting we keep watering we keep trusting that in time god will provide he will keep his promises and save people in our city who don't know him from either idolatry or religion even when promise and provision doesn't immediately come, keep on hoping against hope, trusting God more than trusting yourself. He will come through. He will provide in his way, in his timing. Now, I'm speaking generally because I don't know all the ways this needs to hit the hearts of everyone here. But using uh, an example as an illustration, consider our battle with sin. You experience what John read from Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. This wretched man that I am. Can't live up to who I really want to be as a person. Now what do we know about sin in the life of a believer? We know that we've been set free from the penalty of sin, Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you have experienced new life in Christ so that you, could, you have what the New Testament says is Christ in you and you in Christ, then we know you are no longer condemned. You are set free from the penalty of sin. You have been fully adopted into the, 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 the family of our Father in heaven. You are forever and always a dearly loved son and daughter of your Father in heaven. No one can ever take that away. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. We know that one day we'll be in an eternal state and sin will no longer be possible. It won't exist. But between now and then, we still sin. Even though we've been set free from the penalty, even though we have the power to say no to every temptation, we still sin. And at times, if we're honest, we still want to sin. And this will continue until we die or until Christ returns. And every single time we sin... It's evidence of our lack of belief. More than lack of obedience, lack of belief. Because what you believe drives what you do. We're not trusting God to provide what we need in that moment to help us say no to temptation. We're believing something about God that's a lie. We're not believing something that, that is true about God. And then after we sin, we make it worse. Because when conviction of the Spirit comes, we either wallow in shame or we shrug our shoulders at our sins and pride. Nobody's perfect. In each instance of temptation, 
God has provided a way out, a way of escape, by trusting and believing that whatever we need in that moment that we're trying to fulfill with sin, God has provided a God-glorifying way to meet that need. And even when we fail and we sin, in that moment of conviction, God has provided a way for us to confess, repent, be cleansed, have the joy of our salvation restored, and not wallow in shame or shrug our shoulders in pride. Like we all have these besetting sins. These continual battles with anger and fear and anxiety and lust and the fear of man and indulgence. Do you trust in your Father in heaven has a way forward for you to thrive by first believing him? Trusting him and then second, acting out of that belief and that trust. Hoping against hope at times that one day there will be victory and more and more victory. That you have an identity in Christ that is greater and deeper and stronger than the sins you struggle with or the sins that have been committed against you. And so you, like Abram and Sarai, continue to believe and continue to act out of that belief, trusting in God's provision and timing for all the good things he desires in our life. Sometimes we're, we're more afraid of the consequences of obedience to God than we are of the consequences of our sins. God's clearly shown us, do this. This is what I want you to do. Obey me. But it's going to cause such a radical change in how we live life. We foresee the potential painful consequences and we're like, you know, I would rather not. I'll just continue down this path of sin and this sinful relationship and this sinful activity because that seems to be less hurtful than obeying God. That's a lack of trusting in your father's provision. That obedience to him, believing him, trusting him, and obeying him is the best way to live, even if it causes us to suffer, even if it causes us to wait 25 years for that promise to come. It is still better to obey him because we believe in him and trust in who he is than to take life into our own hands and Hope it works out. How is all this possible? Well, we see the God's provision promise in, in Genesis 12, 3. That one day through the, the descendants of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We know that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Jesus was born in, in the line of the seed of the woman, in the line of Abraham, uh, uh, Adam, in the line of Seth, and Abraham, and on and on, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and Judah, and on we'll go. We can trace the descendants of Jesus, and Matthew does it for us, and Luke does that for us in their gospel accounts, so that one day Jesus would come and fulfill the messianic prophecies and be the Savior of the world, and then the gospel of Jesus would be proclaimed so to the ends of the earth, so that today we are seeing Genesis 12, 3 being fulfilled before our very eyes. As the gospel is going to the nations and getting to people groups around the world, languages and tongues and tribes and, and locations where the gospel is not yet reached, as people are coming alive in those locations, we are seeing us on a path to Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 when we'll be gathered around the throne of the Lamb of Jesus Christ and there will be representatives from every single people group there. We're seeing this happen in our day. Maybe it happens before we're dead, but it will happen. All nations blessed through the Messiah, through the descendant of Abraham. But we see God's provision also perfectly foreshadowed in the highest and most difficult moment of Abraham's faith in Genesis 22. You can turn there. 
One reason I love this series is we're walking through the entire Bible in a way that we get the, the story of Scripture. One reason I hate this series is having to skim through a passage like Genesis 22. Ugh. But in this chapter, God asked Abraham to do something that would ultimately test how much he truly believes God and trusts God to provide and keep his promises. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here am I, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, some can't handle this chapter. It presents this aspect of God that they just can't come to grips with. And so all kinds of interpretations have been offered to explain why God would ask this. So, you know, maybe Abraham ate some rancid lamb the night before. He's obviously sick and hallucinating because God would never ask someone like Abraham to do something like this. Because God is love. Because God is love, he's only going to ask me to do things that make me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside as I define love. He's never going to ask me to do something really hard. But God did not ask Abraham to murder his son. He said, kill your son. That would have been easy. Just grab him and grab a knife. Take care of that in 10 seconds. He asked him to offer him as an offering, a firstborn offering to God. Now, it's still, it's hard to grasp. I get it. We have no concept of this. We don't live in a culture anything like they lived back when Abraham lived. We don't understand the importance of the firstborn in a family like that. But in Abraham's mind, it wasn't a crazy uh, request. It wasn't a crazy ask. If God would have said, Abraham, go kill your wife as an offering to me, he'd have been like, okay, I'm obviously hallucinating. That's not of God. But in his mind, in that culture, and you could read and study more on this, this was not a crazy ask. It was enough for this man of faith to say, okay. Now we know from Hebrews 11 what was going through his mind. God has promised that the seed would come through this son, Isaac. So even if I go and offer my son as a burnt offering, God was going to raise him from the dead and I'm, I'm coming back. In fact, he says that to his servant as we'll see. We're coming back. So there's complete faith and trust in God. But just the question wasn't crazy in Abraham's mind. It made sense to him because of that culture and that that land so picking up in verse 3 so Abraham got up early in the morning saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac he split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about on the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and then Abraham said to his young men stay here with the donkey the boy and I will go over there to worship then we'll come back to you Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. Interestingly, uh, no one really knows how old Isaac is. They think he's anywhere from about 13 to 30. So he's not a young boy, but he's at least a teenager or a young man. He places on his son the wood. He takes the two dangerous items into his hand, the knife and the fire. Even in that, this moment, you see this tenderness of fatherhood happening then you can just imagine this conversation. They're walking along. The sun is shining. The crunch of the gravel and the sand under their feet. And Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father? And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked on together. 
When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But then the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. About 2,000 years later, on the same hills of Moriah, God would provide again the sacrifice of a lamb who is also his son. He would again provide a substitute in the place of sinful humanity, one whose sacrifice would fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. On these same hills in which he, it looked like the seed of the woman would die by Abraham's knife, 2,000 years later, the seed of the woman would finally and forever crush the head of the serpent, calling out, it is finished. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Are you trusting in God for this salvation? Are you trusting in God to provide this salvation through his work and not your work? Are you still wanting to do the work yourself to save yourself? Are you believing him to such a degree that he has your full devotion, no strings attached, And like Abram, he can say to us, pack up everything and come to me to this land that I will show you. And you'll say, okay, let's go. Or do we want to negotiate the terms of our surrender? Well, God, that's an intriguing offer, but can we talk specifics? Now, here's where I'm willing to go. Here's what I'm willing to do. Like I've had people ask me over the years just in conversations with people who are struggling with coming to faith in Christ, and they're beginning to count the cost. Like, that's a good thing. I, okay, I believe this is true, but now I'm seeing that if I believe this and I publicly identify as a follower of Jesus, it's going to change how I live. So get questions like, you know, is that, I have to go to church every week? Do I have to give money to the church? Do I have to uh, quit doing this behavior and start doing this behavior? And I've tried to answer those questions for them, and and maybe sometimes it can be good, but, but maybe if you're asking those questions, you're not really willing to believe because you're wanting to define the terms. You're wanting to define how you come to faith in God. You're wanting to make it something palatable, manageable, something that is neat and fits into a compartment of your life. And that's not the God who gives us salvation. It's not the God of the universe who saves us. We were challenged on the first night of our perspectives class, this class I told you about, me and Abigail were taking about God's mission worldwide. We were challenged to put your yes on the table and let God fill in the details. Does he have your heart and mind and life to that degree? Romans 8.32, he did not even spare his own son but offered him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Everything you need. 
to live this life that he's called and created us to live. So as the worship band comes back up, I want to carve out a few moments of reflection and prayer. You may want to close your eyes, whatever you need to do to open your mind and heart and let the Spirit of God speak to you this morning. Do you believe that God has done everything necessary through Jesus for you to be forgiven of all of your sins and to be fully and forever adopted into his family as a dearly loved son or daughter? If not, then could today be the day of your salvation as you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and his provision for your right standing before God? Christian, to what degree are you living out this trust and belief and obedience and devotion? Where are you not trusting him and relying on yourself to provide what you need? It's going to be wherever sin is repeatedly showing up in your life. Fear, sinful anger, anxiety, lust, coveting what others have, sexual sin, rooting your identity in someone or something other than Christ, turning to food or alcohol or drugs to heal the ache of your soul, unloving attitudes toward others. Where are those behaviors showing you're not trusting him? You're not relying on him. And will you repent and turn to him today? Christian, can you repent of these sins and once again trust in Jesus to provide everything you need to obey him and enjoy him to the fullest in all of life? Jesus, I thank you that you are here today. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit of God is here today to bring life, joy, salvation, hope, peace, love, to transform us from the inside out, to once again set us on the path that you have called and created us to live and walk. And we are here in varied states of brokenness and sinfulness. All of us, every single person in this room, no one measures up. We've all fallen short. So would you come once again in the grace of your gospel and restore us, make us new, transform us, change our heart, our mind, our desires. And let us leave this place more in love with you, more devoted to be your people because we are believing you, trusting you, and obeying you. All for the glory of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.